Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. That's probably the bit where we go, that's why recycling feels a little bit dirty because it feels like this thing that offsets your conscience without actually offsetting the environmental impact of of the process or even the product itself. And that's where we go. We try and avoid recycling and we use that as the last port of call in our business. Um, We prefer to reduce, reuse, refuse, all those things um, first. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. We are proudly sponsored by Neon Treehouse, the best digital agency on the planet Earth. To learn more, just head it to neontreehouse.com or hit the link in our show notes. Today, I'm excited to bring you my conversation with Frankie Layton. Frankie is the founder of The Dirt Company. I'm a big fan of Frankie from way back when she and Dirt were featured in Startup Victoria's Duct Tape magazine. Basically, Frankie and the team at Dirt make laundry products that are stylish, make your clothes smell and look great, and leave you feeling far better about the impact you've had on the planet. I can attest to this as I've just transitioned my family across to dirt from a standard off-the-shelf powder-based solution. The clothes now smell great, the products look amazing in my laundry, and I feel a little bit better every day about the planetary impact. Frankie's career journey, her approach to entrepreneurship, and perfecting product design and experience make for a fascinating listen. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Frankie as much as I did. So I'm thrilled to be here with Frankie. Welcome to the podcast, Frank. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. It's an absolute pleasure. Look, Frankie, so much to talk about, um, as always, that we do have. (laughs) Um, I'd be really keen for you to talk to me a little bit bit about your story and your journey into the space. I mean, everyone knows about the Dirt Company. You're doing just amazing work. But what people might not know is a bit about your journey into that space and how you landed on your feet there and um, got to a place where you're really kicking kicking some goals today. Oh, yeah, sure. No worries. Um, So I guess I just grew up in Melbourne like everybody else, bit of an ocean um, summertime lifestyle and really fell in love with nature, I guess, through that. Um, did school, graduated school and then went off overseas and ended up working on a super yacht um, in the in the south of France. And that was a really, really great experience, but one that was extremely eye-opening into, you know, the way certain parts of the world work. And one of the jobs that we had to do was um, an Atlantic crossing, so sailing from the Mediterranean to the Caribbean, which is obviously tough. <laughs> um, but one thing that I noticed along the journey was uh, the rubbish that we used to create throughout that journey, which was 18 days long, just used to get thrown over the side of the boat. And you would have, you know, dolphins bowing the front of the boat and bags of rubbish going over the, the back of the boat. So the most spectacular views contrasted so strongly with the worst parts of um I guess being a human and it's so uh, terrible that they really were just doing that just throwing garbage over the side and that was kind of legal yeah it was actually um this was 2007 uh the laws were amended in 2012 I later found out um but at the time you once you were one I think it was one nautical mile offshore might have been two um any waste goes once you were one nautical mile offshore, it was only um, like food waste and anything that could biodegrade naturally. 
Um, so it was pretty severe, that, that problem, that the ocean was just getting used like a bit of a dumping ground. Um, so I feel that that was sort of the very um, first spark that went off in my brain about there being a big issue there. Um, at the time, I remember speaking to the owner of the boat, who was a businessman that I really admire, and telling him I, you know, had these plans to do uh, a clinic for um, the young people that might have been suffering from mental illnesses. And he said to me, look, if I were you, I would try not to create a charity, but rather try and create a business that generates revenue that you can use to do whatever you want. So I guess that was the second spark that kind of came from my journey when I was 18. Um, but, you know, I was also 18. So what I wanted to do was travel, have a job, um, you know, actually any job would have would have, would have do at that point in, in my life. Um, so I went off and did those things and kind of finished uni and landed on my feet working in advertising. And I absolutely loved advertising. I had so much fun um, working in that field. And and also one great benefit to it was that you used to get exposed to a lot of people's problems, um, particularly marketing people's problems. <laughs> and often their problem was, oh, you know, people want to buy something that they believe in. Um, so how do we make our product have a purpose? I don't know if you ever came across the Simon Sinek uh, What's your why? Of course. (laughs) The the Sinek Golden Circles, please. Well, if you're working in advertising or probably any consulting field back in 2010, (laughs) I guess, a client would come in the door and they'd say, we need to find our why. And and that was the bit that felt a bit vacuous because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you knew that there was problems that existed in the world. They were real-life problems and you knew that people wanted to connect to a sense of purpose. But at the end of the day, if you've got cheese, you're not going to find your why as a marketing <laughs> team, you know, and that's not going to equal selling more cheese. So I guess that was the bit where, you know, you could start to see that these companies that had a real connected purpose and a real impact were starting to move forward. In addition, I had had these like back of the head thoughts from nearly a decade earlier where I thought I want to do something. I want to be part of the forefront of companies that are actually redesigning the way that people purchase and the way that people shop and also like fundamentally staying authentic to the idea of protecting the earth and protecting nature. And I think I saw that as my opportunity. Um, You know, it was around the time Who Gives a Crap was coming out and Mm. companies that were showing or leading the way in educating people on how they could have an impact without doing it like a scientist who was saying like, you know, global warming's coming and if you guys don't turn around your carbon emissions by a certain percentage by a certain year that was so far-reaching that no one even knew what it meant or Mm. how to act on it, um, you know, these companies were just doing little great things along the way and and that for me was kind of the landing um, or I guess the takeoff point for Dirt where I sort of pulled together this idea of, okay, there's ocean waste, there's this big problem of excessive consumption, there's the fact that people want to buy stuff that's connected to purpose, where is the gap in products and where is nobody thinking about this? And and that's where the laundry aisle came to the forefront. Um, And I really did spend quite a long time doing a lot of washing, trying to work out if there was anybody that was kind of cracking it in that space. And there were certainly people making progress, like EcoStore had made great grounds on ingredients, Method had made, made great grounds on, um, on packaging, but I could see a way where we could put it all together and have the additional idea of um, creating a bigger impact, and that's where the Dirt Company came from. 
so many things to unpack there. I want to get into the dirt company soon, but just want to touch on a few of the things that you raised that I found interesting about your backstory. First yeah. of all, what is a super yacht owner like? <laughs> um, it's very varied. Um, and uh, I mean, as a rule of thumb, they're otherworldly. They're not the kind of people that you and I would um, be able to sit down and have a regular conversation with. I mean, extraordinarily competitive is one thing that at least the self-made billionaires um, all have in common. Uh, lots of um, egotistical chatter about um, whose yacht is bigger, if you know what I mean. Of course. Um, but also like totally wild. Like these people are richer than their celebrities. So it's just that it's that next level where um, I guess if I had to sum it up, I'd, I'd probably say... Um, uh, well, <laughs> actually, I won't say. <laughs> okay. um, I'll just leave it as it, it's difficult yeah. to understand. But I was fortunate enough to have amazing, self-made, really admirable people that had the rags to riches story, which put me on two very lucky boats. Um, it's not always like that. Second question that's boat related, not really product related. <laughs> um, was your experience on the boat with the crew like the show Below Deck? Absolutely was. Yeah. <laughs> we had we had a um, one guy that uh, accidentally got a little bit too drunk and got on a boat, the biggest boat actually, and the biggest super yacht in the ocean, which has this bulb on the front of it that lights up the whole um, front of it. And he got on there one night and started chanting. He was quite drunk. Frank the tank. Frank the tank. His name wasn't Frank, by the way. It just seen a lot of old school yeah and uh they had to get two divers who were employed full-time by that massive super yacht to come in and find him because when he realized <laughs> he was in trouble he started swimming in between all the boats mm. and he was repatriated to back to australia by noon the next day so <laughs> it was like it's pretty extreme world and we were in st thomas in the caribbean at the time so <laughs> it was yeah it was wild. <laughs> Sounds absolutely incredible, absolutely amazing. But one of the insights you did take away from that super yacht owner was that um, rather than starting a charity, it's better to start a business with a purpose um, yeah. or to start a business and then, you know, allow that to fulfil your purpose. What does purpose mean to you coming from the advertising world as well and you know, the Cinec <laughs> and all the stuff that people are doing? And you know, a lot of companies are sort of trying to retrofit purpose into something that already exists that clearly doesn't have a purpose. Yeah. How, do you, how do you think about purpose now being a really kind of like authentic social enterprise founder? Um, I guess it's probably because we started from the platform, I mean, we say our purpose is do less harm or make products that do less harm. That feels like an extraordinarily authentic place for us to start because if you do have a product, you do do harm. I mean, if you do exist, you do do harm. You have an impact in the world. And so our mission or our purpose has always been about just doing incrementally less harm along the way and finding the best solution possible. So I don't think about that as our purpose. I think about that as that's what we're trying to achieve. So whenever we're talking about big strategy or what products we're going to develop next or what we're going to do, there's the idea of what we sell and there's the idea of what we do. And we would never try and sell something if we had to retrofit it back into what we do. What we do first is try and create products that do less harm. And I guess that's just the way I think of it. It feels innate at this point. And um I'm just curious also like how you stumbled across the laundry aisle as the place with the most potential for change or, or like what your frame of mind was or thought process around why the laundry aisle and why um, detergent? 
Um, yeah, sure. There was two points of interest there. One was something I read on the internet, which was that people do the washing. People will make the same choices with their washing that their parents did, that their parents did. So if your parents use powder, you'll use powder. If they use liquid, you'll use liquid. If they washed on hot, if they washed on cold, if they separated their whites and their darks, or if they didn't, you kind of have those habits you have those habits and that speaks volumes about how antiquated the the laundry aisle is as well as that it was completely a convoluted space so you know big jugs it was still in this more is more consumerism and you know I discovered that up to 95% of what's in those jugs can be water Um, so you've got this aisle that's like relying on the fact that you're not going to educate yourself enough to know what's necessary to use in the laundry. And yet we've got the internet. So that worked when the only thing that we used to do was speak to our parents about how to get out of stain and walk down a supermarket aisle. But the D2C world was emerging. We didn't need supermarkets anymore. And actually we could do our own research on how to do laundry or what the best choices were, which also gave us a platform to educate people in in just very little nudges um, around better choices that they could make. And that was opposed to, say, the dishwashing aisle, which one had already had a little bit of a shake-up, but two, um, the products there were super cheap, super nasty because, you know, at the end of the day, no one really, there's no mystery in dishwashing. You put it on a thing, you put it on a thing, and it's out there. So I guess the opportunity to um, persuade consumers with a little bit of trickery was not there. It was still very rife in the laundry aisle, and, and that we saw that as an opportunity to take on. Great answer. And I mean, one thing that sort of springs to mind is that that laundry aisle is just utterly um, awful looking. Uh, I mean, (laughs) everything just looks terrible, too big, um, nothing stands out. It's like walking through a painfully monotonous aisle of just nothing in particular. And I just just wonder kind of like, um, because you came up around the same time as Who Gives a Crap, were you kind of inspired like visually to kind of create something that doesn't look like horseshit? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that was a big part of one of the one of the products that I used that I thought, hey, there's a real opportunity there was Method. Um, and they, since they've been bought by Unilever, they've actually gone backwards, I think, in their product design. But they had this fantastic pump bottle. And I thought, that's just genius. I know exactly how much laundry detergent I should be putting in um, because I pump it out and it says four pumps or five pumps. And we we copied that exact concept and Lo and behold, since they've been bought out, they've gone back to the free-pouring jugs where people inevitably use more laundry detergent because they're free-pouring it. Um, I mean, They want the free-pour, don't they, because that means that people will use too much. Yeah, yeah. so we we would prefer to rely on customer loyalty and smart Mm. design. Mm. And I think that's what we, exactly to your point, where everything looks so horrendous when you walk down that aisle. Um, you know, we felt that laundries were becoming less of an outhouse or a backdoor kind of place in your house and more something like in my house, you walk through the laundry to go to the bathroom or to, yeah, to go to have a shower. Um, so that, may, that means I actually care what that space looks like. If I have guests over, when I have guests over, it may be another few years. <laughs> Hasn't Good been save. a problem Important in the last yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I imagine One day I'll get. I imagine your house is just like this... Um, 
this like pantheon of sustainability where like everything is perfectly like carbon neutral and perfect and you know, <laughs> you've got all the apps going and all the like the fittings and everything. Well, what do you think about um, dry, using like a clothes dryer? Do you hang your clothes or do you use a dryer? Um, I do a little bit of both. Mm. We have so much washing at the moment that we don't actually have enough mm. space or heater power to get all our clothes clean with all the little baby clothes and everything. Um, so I hang where I can. And I do like I like the um, the effect of hanging a lot more. Me too. Um, but I would I I believe in practical sustainability, so I would not kill myself doing something that I thought was more sustainable if there was an option to sometimes lean on um, things that will help you in your life. And I think that that's where that's where I've kind of landed on a lot of things. It's actually that's that whole less harm. Like, okay, if, if six times out of 10, I'm hanging them outside and four times out of 10, I'm using my dryer, that's better than, um, you know, getting so sick of trying to hang them outside that I then go back to 10 times out of 10 using the dryer. And in summer, of course, I it's that's a seasonal answer. <laughs> in summer, I'd go outside all the time. I enjoy that answer because it's not too, um, it's not too polar. So, you know, you, you can have a bit of both and not feel bad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, we've... We need that in our lives, I think. Yeah, totally. We need to accommodate, um, you know, the hecticness of our lives and just, you know, all the random variables to throw in their kids and whatnot as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, how do you balance, when you're creating products, you talk about doing less harm, but sometimes in an industry like yours, it can be expensive to do less harm, uh, but you're also in a race to optimise product quality and, and yeah. attractiveness. How do you kind of strike that delicate balance between you know, making products more sustainable, but also controlling costs and being able to, you know, get a good price as well? Um, anyone in operations in our business would argue I do that poorly. <laughs> <laughs> I've been criticised quite a lot for constantly raising cogs and changing things that make processes more expensive. But thankfully now we're pulling all that into line. It's always been first and foremost the mission of doing less harm. And, uh, I mean, multiple times we've had... Um, costs of goods rise over the last year because freight's got so expensive, ingredient shortages because of the pandemic. Um, we don't pass that on to our customer or we haven't been passing it on to our customer because we we also believe in people aren't going to do less harm at an additional personal cost. Um, it absolutely has to be that you don't have to lift a finger. You just have to make a different choice and everything will get better for you. Um, so I guess in terms of striking that balance, it goes, um, what would the consumer buy anyway? What are they prepared to spend? What are they prepared to purchase and what needs do they have? That's the very first rung that we have to that tick. So you don't, you're not asked to compromise if you use our product. Then it goes environmental impact. What's going to be the way that we can package this up? What ingredients can we use that are going to create the best possible environmental outcome or the least possible impact I guess um, and then there's the part of what's that going to cost us and as long as we can make that work that's probably the third thing that we think about and we're relying on the fact and it, and it has been true to date that with scale all those costs get better and so if you can make it if you could just make it work at small scale you will be able to make it work at large scale and that's been the journey that we've been on and as we're getting bigger and bigger we are finding that to be true which is great. So you're kind of busting that myth that it's too expensive to be sustainable and good. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, it's more co it's it's more costly to be sustainable. I mean, you 
I think our one of our suppliers told us that our ingredients per litre is like 300% times the norm um, of what people would be trying to target their laundry detergent at. But at the same time, like we're not after customers that are, um, you know, that the, their primary goal is price. We we think everyone's everyone should be price conscious. That's the world we're living in. But we also think that people should care about their impact and care about the quality of the products that they're putting on their skin and on their clothes and everything. So, um, yes, I guess we are busting that myth around um, that you can't do sustainable sustainability because it's too expensive. But I wouldn't say that we're in a financial position where I'd say, oh, see, look how well we made it work. (laughs) And that's still a work in progress. It's a work in progress. Fantastic. And you talked a bit about environmental impact. I mean, I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey to impact and where you find yourselves now in terms of, you know, your model measurements, um, where you're heading. Yeah, sure. Um, So I guess our, our impact policy kind of relies on the age old five R's you know, reduce very much, uh, or sorry, refuse is very much a first policy. So, you know, don't use the stuff that really harms the planet. And for us, that's virgin plastic in any way, shape or form where it can be avoided. So um, plastic never gets recycled and only ever gets downcycled. So you can't start with a certain grade of plastic and recycle it even into that same grade of plastic because melting it and remoulding it will degrade it in itself. So when you're talking about recycled plastic, you're generally talking about plastic that has more um, virgin plastic in it as well. So so we didn't want to get into that world of how recycled is our recycled plastic because at the end of the day, it was our belief that if we could refuse it, that would be a much better option. So that's kind of where we started. And then um, reduce is the next one, and, and we've done that through formula design. So we're eight times concentrated, which means we're not shipping shipping that water around that we used to. Um, and then reuse is like up there with our top ten favourite things that we do, um, and that's our refill return program where people can send us back our packs and, and we sanitise them and send them out again. For context, a new pack costs thirty cents, and for us to go through that process, it'll cost a dollar, um, you know, just to get that pack alone. And so that is an example of where sustainability is a lot more expensive. And then there's postage and everything else. So it is three times the cost to do that, um, to do that process. But of course, it's not a perfect process, but if we can keep working on it, which we do all the time, you know, then the, then theoretically we believe we can bring those costs down and make that process more efficient. Um, and also allow people to reuse their same packaging, which is so much better than creating new packaging in the first place. Um, And then I guess finally is recycle. And this is something I don't like recycle. I kind of believe it's the dirtiest R of all um, (laughs) because it makes people feel like a good thing's happening, even though a good thing is probably realistically not happening. Like Mm. something like 20% of your soft plastics are recycled, something like 9% of your plastics are recycled. If you get to glass, you get closer to 40%, aluminium is closer to 60%. So that there are some pockets where recycling is quite good. But overall, don't rely on recycling, you know, as as a means of sustainability. That should be your very last port of call when you're trying to reduce your impact. And And then I... I think like also, I mean, just people making ridiculous claims about the recyclability of products and it's like the wild west out there, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. Well, I mean, 
the, there is no actual law around how you can claim a lot of things like reusing packaging and recycling packaging. So you can say made from recycled plastic or made from recycled waste. And a good example is our refill packs. So they're made from up to 40%. I think the latest batch was like 37.5 technically recycled um, product, but they recycle it off the factory floor. So when they create them, they get off cuts and they take those off cuts and they remelt them down and they put them in. So, you know, you will see people claiming 100% or made from recycled waste with the implication that, you know, you think, oh, cool, that's made from my old milk bottle. It's not actually. It's made from um, waste that was created in the manufacturing process. And that is a great step forward. There's no need not to celebrate that. But you don't want to be going out there and and making people think, feel good about buying this because, hey, it's got no new plastic in it because it will. All recycled plastic has new plastic in it. And I think that's that's probably the bit where we go. That's why recycling feels a little bit dirty because it feels like this thing that offsets your conscience without actually offsetting the environmental impact of, of the process or even the product itself. And that's where we go. We try and avoid recycling and we use that as the last port of call in our business. Um, we prefer to reduce, reuse, refuse, all those things um, first. But in saying that, you know, that our refill packs, once they've been through the process a couple of times, or another example is um, we tried to make our refill packs out of something that was 100% recyclable. Um, which is very hard to do, and we actually failed and we ended up with 10,000 refill packs that we couldn't use um, and we didn't want to put them in landfill, um, but they weren't going to make it through the refill return program. We didn't even know if they were going to make it through the post in the first time. So what we actually did was shred that, shred up those um, recycled refill packs and we've turned them into scoopers for powder for our new, we've got a new machine wash that will probably be out by the time this um, packaging works. And it's the first time we've actually recycled in our business, um, you know, and created a brand new product, but we've done it without putting any additional new plastic in it. So we actually took that recycling pillar and went, yeah, but we hate it. How do we make it authentic and how do we make it a genuine reduction? And we did it and it took us a year <laughs> and it wasn't an easy process. But we're so excited now that we all walk around with these scoops in our hand and, and use them like fidget spinners <laughs> in the office. They're like a calming sort of thing that we've I'll, got. I'll so, take one. If you have any spare fidget spinner yeah. type scoops that are recycled, I'll take one of them. I don't know what it is about it. And then I guess the other thing is we always allocate 50% of our profits to the cause, to the doing less harm. So um, in years gone by, we did that as profit donation where we just donated, you know, up to $40,000 one year to the ocean cleanup. Um, but this year we've taken that pool of profit and we're reallocating it to invest in this recycling program with the hope that we can um, make it a recycling program that can expand beyond our company. So we've decided that those sustainability initiatives, we're going to put one in play every year where we really try and crack open a space that is um, has not been cracked open before. And we know we will succeed some years and fail some years, as was the case with the recycled refill packs. Um, but that's something that feels really exciting for our business because it's not just taking money and throwing it at other good things. It's actually really investing not just money but um, expertise and time and energy into always cracking forward in the sustainability space. 
Love that. And so because you've got such good visibility of the space, what do you kind of see currently as some of the key gaps that are not being um, done particularly well in sustainability and not necessarily recycling but just reusability? I think that there's a there's a bit of a refill re- revolution kind of happening at the moment. It seems to be, and this could just be sitting in my world, it seems to be, though, that this is just from company who sells product to consumer. So there's all the stuff at the back end of the business um, that is still not properly worked out. So, for example, if somebody could create containers, so there's a pallet company called Shep and they you know, they basically ship out pallets and then they return pallets and there's a fee on pallets itself. So, but if you took, if you look at um, kind of chemical containers or any kind of packaging containers, that's all single use stuff. And you would be amazed at the amount of waste that that generates through the process. So for me, it feels like as a business owner, I'm desperate to do my business with people that are not just looking at the the B2C world, but also the B2B world and working out how they can have big impact there. Even, you know, manufacturers as, as, have not been super quick to adapt to things like solar energy and, mm. and the rest of it. And, you know, another gap for us is the carbon footprint. A lot of our carbon footprint is managed in product design because we're absolutely not shipping those bits of water around the country and we manufacture locally and we buy off local people. So, We actually do the authentic things not to create carbon in the first place, but carbon creation is a part of having a process that creates a product. And so you can mitigate your carbon creation or you can offset it. But, um, you know, offsetting it is an imperfect solution as well because it's only offset for a period of time and it's not actually gone. It's only offset for the period of time that's stipulated Um, in the terms of the company you sign up with. So the net result is everyone saying, can you offset the carbon? And we're sitting there thinking, like, shouldn't it be about how much carbon you don't create in the first place? Shouldn't that be the very first step? (laughs) Not like, yeah, "Yeah, we offset the most carbon this year because we made the most. Um, So there's, there's a lot of things in the world that feel a bit tautological that I would love to, you know, see people sit down and go, okay, so we know consumers are on board with it and the, and the companies that sell to consumers are on board with it. What about the companies that sell to the companies that sell to the consumers? That feels like a whole world that if I wasn't, forcing myself to stay focused on dirt, I would love to get my hands into. Just on who you're selling to, I'm curious, is there a particular kind of customer persona um, that, that tends to buy dirt products? Or um, Yes and no. I mean, the spread is definitely a bar chart that peaks around 40, I guess. I mean, sorry, uh, um, what do you call those? The curve? Hmm. The distribution curve probably peaks around 40, but there's definitely people that sit all the way up to sort of 60 and 70. And I suspect the reasons that they're not as uh, represented is more a, a combination of the um, the purchase channel. So online. Are you talking about age when you say 40, 60, 70? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah sorry. Cool. That, that's age. And then I guess everyone is connected to our company either by um, a, a care for the planet or a love of design. I know that there's people that probably do care about the planet, but that comes secondary to wanting, you know, something pretty in their laundry. Um, and that's probably the design of the product. Like, again. What about, um, what, what about people who want to signal that they're doing the right thing and maybe don't really care about doing the right thing? <laughs> they're probably there. Um, the, <laughs> there must the be some. That I, yeah. The only thing I would say is 
Um, laundry is probably the no, not the most visible place to do it. True. So you um, probably have less of that. Like I reckon there's a lot of who gives a crap consumers who maybe don't really care, but they want to be seen to be caring. Like, yeah, cause, exactly. Because it looks so good as well and it's such They're a They're the ones that have the pyramids of toilet paper in their <laughs> yeah, laundry. Exactly. exactly. Everyone else just shoves it under the sink. <laughs> pyramids yeah. everywhere. Um, yeah. How much do you see it as your role to educate people and I guess – you know, looking outside that primary kind of target market or key consumer group, how much of it is your role to kind of educate them and get them across the line to shift product choice towards dirt? Um, I see that as the only thing that would generate my success as a founder of this company. That is 100% what I want to do. It had always occurred to me that the, that the one of the key insights in starting the company was sustainability costs you more. Well, there's a perception that sustainability costs you more. And I would like to change that to, you know, you do you buy something you like, it works really well, it's a great price, and by the way, you're doing something great because we're inherently selfish human beings and I feel like, you know, the, the purpose part of it is the self-actualization piece or maybe the poser piece or gives you the bragging rights or um, the reason to share potentially. It's really important. But if you want to create repetitive behavior to doing the right thing, you fundamentally have to make the product, the price, the experience overall better. And so that is where a lot of my focus goes. So that's probably the, the push and pull in my days is, you know, I want to spend my day sitting next to a garbage patch, but also identifying that we have a job and that's creating the best laundry detergent we possibly can. And that consumes a lot of time as well. But without it, there is no garbage patch that I get to sit beside. Um, and so for me, the motivation is the purpose. I think for a lot of customers, the motivation is the purpose. But the reason that they stay is because we don't make it difficult for them to make that choice. We make it better for them to make that choice. And do you find there's a particular way that works best to educate people about the benefits? Is it about educating about the benefits of sustainability and, and what they're doing by purchasing your product versus another product? Or, you know, it must take time to formulate the right kind of scripting or messaging to get people kind of attuned to, to what the vision's all about? Yeah, I think so. We can often get ourselves even in a muddle internally about that because this is about the best laundry detergent, but by the way, you're saving the planet or, hey, you're saving the planet and by the way, you get the best laundry detergent. Yeah. Um, you know, that's constantly a spectrum that we explore with our messaging because, you know, some people care about one and some people care about the other. Um, fundamentally, what I believe will create a long-term success or what I'm hopeful will create long-term success for us is an authentic attachment to the mission. So we're not out there with um, first marketing claims and second product or, or um, authenticity around sustainability. We're first trying to crack the sustainability code and then second, we tell people about it. But it means if we can capture your interest and you want to do your own research, you're going to find out more and more and more about all the stuff that we do. And you're going to find out more and more and more that we are like authentic garbage patch kids that just, you know, really do want to um, have an impact in that space. Um, and so, yeah, it is tough. That's not that's not an easy balance to strike. And even if you look at the um, the numbers, you know, around what advertising works and what advertising doesn't, you wouldn't find a clear-cut answer on that. It's It's ongoing. That sounds like it's a little bit experimental. Always. And, you know, what might be working for a long time, then something shifts, like, um, 
you know, you have plastic free July and then all of a sudden everything's, everyone's thinking about, all right, this is the month that I'm going to make everything plastic free. And then you just got to get out there with your plastic messaging. And then you have months like, um, you know, Christmas time where people say, I don't want to, I don't want to give people junk. And that's a message that you get out there with, like, this is going to be, this is actually going to make your laundry fun. Um, so that's kind of the, you know, that's kind of the pattern that we have to follow. I was reflecting earlier, I saw a fantastic tweet from Mickey Perkins, the journalist saying, no, I don't want to hear about your company's emissions reduction journey. <laughs> and I, I, I just wondered, great. I wondered how that sits with you because you must see so many companies banging on about how great they are, like big companies, multinationals, um, and also giant Australian brands talking about how great they're doing and how emissions are going to be to zero, you know, by 2025. What, yeah. do you make, what do you make of all of that and how do you kind of put that in context? Oh, uh, look, I have to say I appreciate that everybody's trying. I appreciate that everybody's kind of on this journey. It comes back to that start with why thing, you know, and everyone's realising we better actually we better actually um, care about what consumers care about, not just the P&L, or the caring about what consumers care about is going to um, help the P&L, I guess. So it's great that everybody's there, but um, I, I think, you know, an example is I read a plastic report recently that said um, one of the big holding companies is going to make sure that all their packaging produced by 2025 is going to have a, is going to be made from recycled material. They don't specify what degree of recycled material. But at the same time, they're also, um, they're also putting out there that they're going to double the amount of plastic they produce by 2025 and that's going to drive their business growth. So the net result is that there's twice as much plastic getting consumed and yep. whether that's from 30% recycled plastic or 10% recycled plastic or 1% recycled plastic, you know, you're going to need more plastic to create that much more plastic. And so that's smoking mirrors to me. That's saying like yeah. we'll do better and we'll go out there with our message that we're doing the best, but we won't actually also explain to you that the net result is going to be that there's more plastic in the world, yeah. which is inevitably what it is, especially with the recycling rates of plastic being what they are. So I think that's that that um, tweet speaks to it because people are waking up to that. There's a fatigue to, yes, we know you're doing good, but also like how can this be good? I got a fresh can of Coca-Cola every day not to name names or point fingers at companies <laughs> um but you know and that plastic's coming from somewhere my recycling bin's full and I know you don't recycle it so you know these dots are connecting in people as as taking care of our planet becomes more important than ever and I think that's that's the whole point about carbon offset as well like don't create the carbon don't create the plastic don't use it don't buy it as a consumer that is the way that's the fastest way to make change and then everything else, all the other R's follow. Brilliant. I want to hear about this infamous spreadsheet, uh, why my product is better than yours <laughs> and how that's shaped your approach to product improvement and innovation. Yes, I did create a, pro a spreadsheet that was actually titled Why My Product is Better Than Yours. And I went and bought almost every product in the laundry aisle. And if I couldn't find a reason that my product was better, I reformulated or I recreated the concept depending on what stage of the process I was in. Um, I remember once I against the competitor that I was really keen on beating, I found out that we don't perform as well on grass stains. And I went back to the chemist and I said, hey, guys, 
And they're like, oh, we know what you're going to say. <laughs> like the fifth time I'd been They back were hoping there. you wouldn't notice yeah. about the grass stains thing, but you picked it up. Just, yeah, I, I went there <laughs> and I found it. Um, and actually that was just a great exercise if you are ever starting a company and you are trying to put your product to the test because it, it doesn't give you the opportunity to say things like brand you know, which is um, which is a great reason why people might purchase the product, but it's not actually a reason why one product is better than the other. So it was the spreadsheet that governed the product quality that's kind of kept the company really firing. And do you recommend that to to other people who are looking at uh, running businesses or already running businesses or social enterprises that a tool that can be commonly used? Yeah, I think so. Like, um, you know, you generally know the five things that people that will make a, a purchase in any category. You know, price is obviously connected through all categories. Convenience is probably connected through all categories these days. And then depending on what you're selling or what you're trying to create, it's, um, you know, it could be the interest factor in your projects or how local they are. For example, if, you, if you're doing kind of charitable initiatives, I think people are sick of... Um, you know, sending money across to faraway lands for faraway projects. So I don't know, that might be a reason if it's in um, product design, it could be quality or taste or whatever. And I didn't just say, oh, yeah, mine's better in quality. Like that is not what I'd recommend doing in the spreadsheet because if you've designed it, you'll probably think it is. Get some testing done. If there's no no way to do it, um, get 10 of your friends and blind test. You know, be objective about doing that spreadsheet. Don't be kind of subjective like I like my colors better they're not the reasons <laughs> that I had there they were all get about someone else to review your spreadsheet and exactly all peer review not by a friend by an enemy preferably it, exactly <laughs> if you could send it to your competitor and say tear yeah. this apart yeah that would be my that would be my next strongest recommendation but yeah. if you can't your spreadsheet's the next best step. make sure your spreadsheet gets red teamed that's the message here yeah exactly um Frankie what's coming up for dirt company what's sort of on the horizon product wise uh, what are you thinking about as your next kind of horizons for the next few months? Um, well, for the next few months, we've got this machine wash slash scooper that we're all so, so excited about. And I think that for us is opening up a new, um, almost a new pillar of sustainability in our business. So there'll be a lot of energy that gets um, designated towards what else can we do. And that's probably our internal fo- our internal focus for this month. Regarding product development, we've um, made a lot of good ground with creating new laundry detergents so um, laundry detergent as it turns out is something where people will like it one way or the other and you can't create a product that does both Um, so I'm specifically talking about do you like like light unscented product or do you like um, you know stronger um, scents and more chemical chemical sort of effect in your washing Um, so we're creating a product portfolio that matches more or less what people would like there. Um, And then other laundry products are in the pipeline, but I will not speak to them yet because we have to first check that they're going to work. (laughs) That's always about a year-long process. (laughs) Look, I was was hoping for an exclusive, uh, you heard it first from the Humans of Purpose podcast, but uh, we'll we'll talk about that one. I have to know if it works first. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Very fair. Um, Tell me, how can people, first of all, where can people find and purchase the product? Uh, That's the first question. So the best place to find our product is online at thedirtcompany.com.au. You can purchase online or um, on subscription. So we just send you your laundry products as you need them. 
Um, and if people want to connect to me, I'm on LinkedIn under Frankie Layton. And I do check it. Um, if, it if it's not straight away, <laughs> it will be. Um, I definitely do check it as any, any chance I get. Frankie, fantastic chatting with you. Hang on a minute. We'll have a quick debrief. But I want to just thank you again for coming on the pod. Thank you. It's been so good. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 